Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for worshiping here with us. Two Sundays ago, we read about one of the greatest disasters in the entire Bible, and that is the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. After years and years and years of wicked kings, after the sin of idolatry had deeply ingrained itself into Israelite culture and Israelite hearts, and after multiple warnings from multiple prophets, God's judgment on his people finally came. In 722 B.C., the nation of Assyria besieged Israel's capital city of Samaria. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, and God's promised land were exiled. The northern kingdom was no more. But as awful and as shocking as this event was, something even worse was coming. The southern kingdom of Judah, generally speaking, had had a better go of things. They had fewer kings. They even had some good kings. Judah wasn't always perfect, but hey, at least they weren't Israel. But then King Manasseh came along and quickly helped Judah catch up to Israel's corruption. He led the people to worship idols and desecrate God's temple. He burned his own son as an offering. He filled Jerusalem, the city of God, with innocent blood. Now, Manasseh did eventually repent of his sin, and God showed him mercy. But Manasseh set a chain of events in motion that would lead Judah to the same fate as their Israelite neighbors. Judgment. Exile. But hold on a minute. What about God's faithfulness to King David? You see, long ago, God had made a promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7. He had promised David that he would have a son, and his son's throne would be established forever. His kingdom would be made sure. On top of that, even during Manasseh's worst days, we're reminded of God's faithfulness to David. In 2 Kings 21, verse 7, one of the verses that we read last week, we're reminded that God had chosen Jerusalem. He had put his name on Jerusalem's temple forever. So if Jerusalem falls, if the temple is destroyed, then aren't God's promises to David called into question? And perhaps most importantly, if God is not faithful to his promises to David, how can we be how can we be sure that he'll be faithful to his promises to us? So open your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 22. Feel free to follow along as we read here in the room and at home as well. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace to us. And Lord, thank you for your word. Even when we read difficult passages like we will this morning, thank you for the truths that you teach us, 
the reminders that you give us, all of which we need on a regular basis. We just took communion, and that's a reminder of who you are and what you've done, and we need that on a regular basis. And Lord, we need your word as well, and so I pray that you would teach us, inform us, and shape us by your word this morning so that we might know you better, love you more, and honor you more with our words and our deeds and our lives. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this church, the opportunity we have to worship here together today. I pray that it be honoring to you and good for us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Josiah, Manasseh's grandson, was not a royal failure. In fact, he was Judah's last good king. Josiah leads repairs and renovations of the temple. He rediscovers and reveres God's law, holding himself and his people accountable to it for the first time in generations. Josiah repents of his sin. He repents of the nation's sin. He reforms the priesthood and restores the practice of the Passover. And perhaps most significantly, Josiah rejected idolatry more vigorously than any king before him. Josiah burns, beats, breaks down, desecrates, defiles, and removes any sign of the high places that so often tripped Judah up. Josiah is so great. We read in 2 Kings 23, verse 25. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, And with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That's pretty high praise for Josiah. But sadly, all of Josiah's initiatives and accomplishments, as great as they were, well, they were too little, too late. 2 Kings 23, verse 26 Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So not even the great King Josiah could right all the wrongs that the nation of Judah had committed. The toothpaste was out of the tube. The genie was out of the bottle. God had justly decided long ago that Judah would be exiled for their sins. And while God did mercifully wait until Josiah was gone to do it, nothing Josiah did in advance could truly stop it. And given what we've read over the past few weeks, honestly, that shouldn't come as a surprise. We read 2 Kings 17 a few weeks ago during the reign of Hosea. Verse 13 says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah, not just Israel, but Judah too, 
He warned them by every prophet and every seer. Judah also, not just Israel, Judah too, did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. In 2 Kings chapter 20, King Hezekiah welcomes Babylonian officials into Jerusalem and feels the need to show off all of his treasures. But then the prophet Isaiah warns Hezekiah that one day Babylon will be back. And this time they won't just look. And then last week we read in 2 Kings 21, 10 through 15, that God would wipe Jerusalem out like a dish. Judah deserved judgment. And there have been multiple previews of it. Quite frankly, it's been a long time coming, which only speaks to the patience and the grace of God. But in today's chapters, God's judgment finally arrives. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, we said that the fall of Judah was a worse disaster than the fall of Israel. Why is that? What makes the fall of Judah so much more disastrous than the fall of Israel? What makes 586 B.C. so much more devastating than 722 B.C.? Well, it comes down to three words. David, Jerusalem, temple. David, Jerusalem, temple. It simply cannot be overstated how central those three words were to the imagination, the worldview, the history, the national pride, and the very reason for existence of the Jewish people. There is no comparison, no illustration that can even come close to doing it justice. Losing any of those three things... The promise to David, the city of Jerusalem, or the glorious temple. Losing them would be practically, spiritually, politically, and existentially catastrophic. It would call everything the people of Judah ever believed about God, ever believed about themselves, and ever believed about their world into question. If they lose those, then everything they thought, everything they knew, everything they loved would be shaken down to its foundation. And that's exactly what happens. It starts at the end of 2 Kings chapter 23, when a man named Jehoiakim becomes king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord became a servant of Babylon, and provoked King Nebuchadnezzar's wrath by rebelling against him. And Jerusalem was attacked as a result. Then a man named Jehoiakim becomes king, and really it's the same old song and dance. Only this time, Jehoiakim doesn't even put up a fight against Babylon. The siege of Jerusalem begins in earnest when treasures are taken and people are deported, including Jehoiakim himself. Jerusalem is left bloodied and bruised, 
but at least it's still standing. But then finally, a man named Zedekiah is appointed king over Judah. And really, at this point, appointing new kings is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Zedekiah, too, rebels against Babylon. But this time, Nebuchadnezzar runs out of patience. That's when we get to the faithful chapter, 2 Kings 25, starting in verse 1. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, which, as we've said before, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see something presented like that, you know what's about to happen is very important. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. Chaldeans, another word for Babylonians. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls Around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Jumping ahead to verse 18. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, and the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. In short, the unthinkable has happened. Judah has fallen. David's throne is now vacant. The chosen city is now ransacked. God's temple is now destroyed. The prophets had warned them 
But they didn't listen. Hezekiah saw it coming, but it wasn't his problem. Manasseh repented, but the nation didn't. Josiah tried to raise Judah better, but his pleading they denied. That leaves only Judah to blame because Josiah tried. So, so much for God's faithfulness, right? So much for God's promises, right? They're buried in the dust of an empty throne, a smoldering city, and an obliterated temple. Can God be trusted after that? But what do we learn from such a horrible tragedy of such biblical proportions? What do we take away from one of the darkest moments in all of Scripture? Well, a few lessons. First, God's people can look back on this event as a cautionary tale against the sins of spiritual laziness, a sense of entitlement, and arrogance. For years leading up to this event, the people of Judah were convinced that what happened to Israel could never happen to them, no matter how wicked they got. Why? Those three words we mentioned earlier. David, Jerusalem, temple. They were on David's side. They were in the chosen city of Jerusalem. They had the only real, true, original temple of God's presence. What happened up north wouldn't happen to them. They weren't going to be exiled. God would never treat them that way. And while, in a sense, those three things were true, they were on David's side. They were in Jerusalem. They did have the temple. The people of Judah allowed themselves to get complacent. They became half-hearted in their worship, their obedience, and their love. They convinced themselves that they could deny, reject, provoke, and abandon God without consequence. They had a fallback plan. They had a get-out-of-exile-free card. They had three of them. In short, the people of Judah took God's kindness to them for granted, and they were judged for it. We Christians are not immune or exempt from the same temptation. Spiritual laziness, a sense of entitlement, and arrogance. I raised my hand. I said the prayer. I got dunked in the water. I write my checks. As long as I jump through the hoops, perform the right rituals, and put on a nice show, then I'm in good shape. We, too, can find ourselves getting complacent and half-hearted in our love for God to the point of taking his kindness to us. But with nothing less than the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we can take it for granted. That's why the Apostle Paul reminds believers in Galatians 5, verse 13, not to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He also reminds us in Romans 6 that God's grace to us is not our license to pursue sin, 
Not our license to get away with sin. God's grace to us is the very basis, the very motivation for our pursuit of holiness. The kindness that God has shown us through Jesus Christ ought not to lead us to spiritual laziness, a sense of entitlement or arrogance. It leads us to a growing sense of humility, gratitude, and worship. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is this. We can look back at this event and be reminded that God sometimes sees it fit to discipline his people. As horrific as this event was for Judah, they deserved it. They had plenty of warnings. God gave them more than enough time to repent. And really, they should have known better. Thus, God had every right to allow or even directly cause his people to face the consequences of their actions. But hold on. What about God's grace? What about God's love? What about God's mercy? I mean, the word discipline doesn't exactly bring those attributes of God to mind, does it? Well, Christians can be confident that while God's discipline may be painful, he does not discipline us for the sake of our complete and utter destruction. He disciplines us because he loves us. He disciplines us because it's for our good. It's for our purity. It's for our repentance. This short-term suffering is for our long-term growth. As we read in Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines us because he is a loving father. So that we may share in his holiness and yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So lesson number one, it's a cautionary tale against the temptation of spiritual laziness. Lesson number two, the story reminds us that God sometimes disciplines his people. Lesson number three, the story can remind us that there will be a day of judgment. For the nation of Judah, 586 B.C. must have felt like nothing less than a day of judgment. They were called to the carpet for their sins, and they were punished. For generations, they had forgotten that there was a God they must answer to. They lived as if there wasn't, and they got a rude awakening when Babylon showed up at their gates, and they remembered that there was. I'm sure those people were shocked, though really they shouldn't have been. Likewise, believers in Jesus know that one day all humanity will answer to God. Christ will return in power and glory as king and judge. Of course, we have confidence that we will stand in that day of judgment. Not because of anything in us, but by faith in Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross. For Christians, the day of judgment is not something that we dread. It's something that we eagerly and even joyfully await. But we still must be ready. 
As Jesus warns his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25, we must stay awake. We must keep watch. We must make good use of the time. We don't want to be caught napping like Judah. But once again, coming back to the question we asked at the beginning of the sermon, what do we make of God's faithfulness to David from this passage? I mean, are we just going to overlook the fact that apparently God's promises weren't all that reliable after all? Really, that may be the biggest question this biblical event raises. And the answer may be important, more important than anything else we've talked about today. Does God keep his promises or not? Can God's word be trusted or not? If the answer is no, then those three lessons we just talked about, they lose their significance. And though it may be hard to see through the wreckage of 2 Kings 25, the answer is a resounding yes. God does keep his promises. God's word can be trusted. God is faithful. You see, God's people in both Israel and Judah would not be completely annihilated. They wouldn't be exiled forever. The walls of Jerusalem would eventually be rebuilt. God's temple would stand again, though not in its former glory. But that's only two out of three. What about David? What about David's throne? You see, even after all those other sufferings are past, David's throne would remain empty. And if that's the case, does that mean God has failed? Again, the answer is no. Because there would be another Davidic king. And his name is Jesus Christ. And as we'll see over the next two weeks, Palm Sunday and Easter, Jesus would not reign in the same way that David, Solomon, or any other king of Israel or Judah ever did. And you know, maybe that's okay. Because in one way or another, all those other kings, they were royal failures. But this king will be different. This king will be better. He will lead God's people to a better city. He will lead us to a better temple. And he'll lead us there from a very different kind of throne. One shaped like a cross that leads to a tomb, but ultimately ends with him sitting at the right hand of the father. This city will come down from heaven. And there won't be a temple of God's presence in that city because God will be so close that a temple isn't needed. And all the marks of the royal failures, all the marks of this fallen world in which they rule and reign and we live and we suffer. Tears, death, mourning, crying, pain, destruction, sin and Satan. 
in that better city with that better temple and that better king, they will be no more. All who believe in this king, the son of David, the son of God, Jesus Christ, will be welcome. And he will never fail. His kingdom will never fall. And those in his kingdom will never be exiled. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that you made to David that you kept even if it wasn't always easy to see how or when or where. But, Lord, you kept your promises to David. And, Lord, thank you that we are beneficiaries as well of your promises to David. Those promises that you issued way back in the Old Testament, dating all the way back to the first chapters of the Bible, promises to Adam and Eve, promises to Abraham, promises to David, promises to Moses, Those promises aren't just good for people from a long time ago, people in a very different world, people in a very different area of the planet. Those promises are good for all mankind. We are all beneficiaries of your promises. And because you have kept your promises to David, we can trust that you will keep your promises to us. You promise that by the body and blood of Christ, we will be saved in the day of judgment. You promise that by the body and blood of Christ, our sins are forgiven. You promise by the body and blood of Christ that we are reconciled to you. And Lord, you are a God who keeps your promises. You've proven it over and over and over again. Even when things seem to be falling apart, even when chaos seemed to reign, even when destruction was everywhere, you've kept your promises. And so, Lord, help us trust you, help us obey you, worship you, follow you, and love you, knowing that we have promises to look forward to in eternity. So help us not lose heart. Help us not give up. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Preserve us and sustain us until we see our new king face to face. Until we dwell in that new city that comes down from heaven. Until we stand in your presence forever where no temple is needed because you are there. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.